Uh, Please stand for the reading of God's word. Esther 1. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, oh no, his name's like 20 times in this, so I'm going to get it down. Ahasuerus. Everybody say it with me. Ahasuerus. Um, The Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and in marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king, and drinking was according to this edict. There's no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff in his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. (laughs) On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come into the king's presence delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure towards all who were versed in law and judgment, the men um, next to him being these seven guys, and (laughs) Memukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done with Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus, delivered by the eunuchs. Then Mamukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done this wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in the province of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it pleases the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the law of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed through all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will, be, will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and princes, and the king did as Mimukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in their own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. (sighs) This is God's word. You may be seated. Thank you, Britton. Thank you. All right, well, if it's your first time joining us, welcome. We have dedicated this year to biblical literacy. And what that means for us is that we are reading the church, or reading the church, we are reading the Bible as a church. Uh, We're doing it just to know the Bible firsthand, to know what it teaches, uh, and in order to be shaped by the story of God. And along with that, we are teaching through the Bible on Sunday mornings. We're teaching the main themes, characters, and storyline. And so this morning, we're actually beginning a new series through the book of Esther. Um, Esther is a truly 
beautifully written story. Even, I don't know if you guys just know, it's just like the way in which it's written. Um, just pomp and circumstance. I mean, it's just like, who is this? Who's writing in this thing? It's just, it's amazing. It reads like a play. Uh, it's a tale of sensuality. It's a tale of brutality. Um, you know, you think you have subtle Esther. We'll see that as the story unfolds. You have resolute Mordecai, this one man who is just fixed and determined. You have the fumbling, drunk buffoon of a king, Ahasuerus. And finally, you have the menacing villain, Haman the Agagite, descended from the great enemy of Israel, the Amalekites. I mean, what is this, Shakespeare? I mean, like the whole way it's set up, the way that it's written, this is like a play, the way that it unfolds. Uh, and Esther is a story that chronicles God's surprising preservation of his people when their very existence is threatened by a superpower. As we'll see, irony or reversal is the key to the plot of Esther. Esther 9, um, I believe it's verse 12, says this phrase in Hebrew, the reverse occurred. So Haman, the villain, he plans this whole plot of where he's going to annihilate the Jews, and at the last minute, it's just a, a, a turn of events, and everything comes down on his head. So we put this, I don't know if you guys see this, like little tin hidden behind the ace of spades here. Um, Michelle did the graphic for us, and I, like, we were trying to work with dice, because, um, hold on, let me just say this. It'll make more sense if I say this first. So the Feast of Purim is celebrated by Jews to this day to commemorate this story and the Jewish victory over their enemies. So the word Purim comes from the Hebrew word for dice, right? For the word pur in Hebrew. It's ironically named after the lot cast to determine the date the Jews would be executed by the story's antagonist, Haman. So I was like, oh, we got to get a dice, you know, and be like, God is in the dice, you know, in the roll of the dice. And the dice just looks super lame. So 21, right? Yeah, a little blackjack on there. Uh, so I promised Michelle I would explain it for everyone. So we could call this story something like God and the roll of the dice or the true Godfather, right? Like just the strings attached and doing everything in the background, you know. It has all the fixings of an incredible story, a tragedy, a comedy, a fairy tale. It's truly Shakespearean. Now, even to this day, when the Jews celebrate Purim, they read the story out loud while participants dress up as characters and even perform skits from the story. And the Feast of Purim has a carnival-esque atmosphere to it. Food and drink are given in excess gifts are exchanged charity is given to the poor it's like mardi gras and christmas combined right this thing's killer so let's talk a little bit about the historical context so the jews are in exile uh, many of you know the story you've been reading along uh, with us in the year of biblical literacy the jews are called to be the separate people of God. They were called to be distinct in a culture, in a time where everyone was doing what they thought was right. People were worshiping idols and false gods. People were sacrificing their children. Murder was rampant. Violence was, was great during this time of the world. And the Jews were supposed to be different than all of that. They were supposed to be like God. But we know that the Jews failed again and again and again to perform this. And God told them in Deuteronomy that if they failed, if they hardened their hearts, if they refused to keep his commandments, he would bring the curse of exile on them. That they would be taken from the land that he gave them as a gift, a land flowing with milk and honey, that they would be removed from that land and they would be sent to the east, far away from the presence of God. Now, that is exactly what happened. Uh, not only the Jewish people, but the kings themselves were exceedingly wicked. There's a place in, outside of Jerusalem, and it's called the Valley of Gehenna. You guys ever heard of that, or have you ever heard of Gehenna? So many people are like, oh, it's just another name for hell. No, this is actually the place where they sacrificed children to the god Moloch. They were supposed to worship the true and the living God to honor people that were made in God's image, and instead they turned from God to idols and they began murdering their children by burning them to Moloch. 
and to Baal and to Ashtoreth. And, and this, this, there's this valley there that's still there to this day. And this is the place where the fires burned the children. Just this horrific stuff. And so God, he punishes their evil and he sends them into exile. Now, our story takes place in the city of Susa, which is modern-day Iran. It's the capital city of the Persian Empire. And the biblical timeline is that God's people, after many years of God's patience and warning, as I said, have been taken into exile. They've received their just judgment. The Babylonians came to Jerusalem in 586. They destroyed the temple, Jerusalem, and they took the Jewish people into captivity. In 539, Cyrus the Great, he's the king of the Medo-Persian Empire, he conquers Babylon and brought it and its conquered people, including the Jewish captives, under his rule. And the Persian Empire uh, ruled for 200 years. Um, it stretched from modern Pakistan to, Sudan, to the Sudan in North Africa to the northernmost parts of modern Turkey. Very vast empire. And under Cyrus's reign, the Jews had been allowed to go back to Jerusalem and had been given permission to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and the temple. So our story takes place after the exiles have returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the walls. But there were some Jews that simply stayed in Babylon. There were Jews that stayed in Susa. And so we're going to be talking about this era for probably the next couple months. So the year of our story is around 486 or 480 BC. Ahasuerus, or his Greek name, Xerxes, is the king of Persia, and he's one of the main characters in our story. Now, there's a lot of difficulty around Esther. Uh, It's one of the two books of the Bible named after a female character. That's not a difficulty, by the way. Uh, But there is nothing particularly Jewish about this book, uh, at least in a religious sense. God is not mentioned once in this book. Not his personal name, Yahweh, nor the generic Elohim. It's a secular book, really. Interesting facts about the book of Esther. The standard Jewish household forbade reading the book of Esther before the age of 30 because of its content. The Essenes, the religious group that wrote and preserved what we call the Dead Sea Scrolls, did not include Esther in their writings because they were considered totally pagan and vulgar. The book of Esther is so vulgar and jacked up that the Christian church did not write any commentaries on the book of Esther for the first seven centuries of the church. Everybody's like, don't touch it. No, just don't even, don't even read it. Calvin never commented or taught from it. And Martin Luther said, I wish it had never come to us at all, for it has too many heathen unnaturalities. Ooh, right? Some of you young people are like, I've got to read Esther. <laughs> okay, so why, why do people say this about Esther? Well, let's talk about it. Esther, the heroine, her name is not Jewish. It is a derivative of the name Ishtar a Babylonian fertility goddess. Esther, as we will see, is chosen to take part in a kind of beauty pageant to see who will become the next queen after Queen Vashti has been removed. She spends a whole night having sex with the king. She is picked to be queen because of her beauty, her beautiful body, and her ability to outperform in bed the other virgins who are sleeping with the king. She is not chosen because of her purity, inner beauty, or distinct Jewishness. Uh, one commentator said, this is less VeggieTales and more Game of Thrones. <laughs> That's what's going on here. Okay, this girl is 100% compromised. And Mordecai, her elder cousin, the hero, he doesn't fare much better. His name is a derivative of Marduk the highest god of the Babylonians. And he's the one who puts Esther up to the whole thing and encourages her to conceal her Jewishness while doing it. In the end, and with a strange turn of events, these two Jews orchestrate the killing of all the enemies of the Jews in the Persian Empire. It's bloody horrific, and this is why the Jews still celebrate the Feast of Purim to this day. I mean, the end, right? I mean, it's just like grotesque. Um, A lot of impaling going on in this story, a lot of sex going on, a lot of pomp going on. So, why is this in the Bible? 
These characters are not portrayed as God-fearing, covenant-witnessing, law-keeping Jews. Quite the opposite. They are nothing like their contemporaries, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the faithful Jewish youths in Babylonian captivity. One uh, person compared Daniel and his crew uh, to like a group of New Yorkers. Uh, Daniel and his buddies show up to Babylon. They're like, this is how... I'm going to like do a New York accent on accident. This is how I talk. This is what I eat. This is my God. This is my way of life. You don't like it? Burn me. Mordecai and Esther are like millennials on spring break. Like, down for whatever. Like, you do that, we do that. Like, we'll do that, I'll try that, right? Like, they are completely compromised. No saltiness, no distinction. In this book, not only is there not mention of Yahweh or just Elohim, God, generic term. There's no mention of Torah. There's no mention of temple. There's no mention of prayer. There are no visions, no prophetic denunciations or encouragements, and no miracles. You know, what is this book doing in the Bible? Yet, it feels a lot like the days we're living in. We are not familiar with experiencing divine intervention in the way the Bible often describes. Our culture and church are far from a biblical rootedness and identity. Uh, Esther grows up in captivity. She never knew temple. She never knew Torah. She never knew kosher. She's post-Jewish, post-Christian or whatever, right? knows nothing of the past, has no rootedness in her faith. So maybe this book has something to say to us after all. Now, not everyone sees the book of Esther this way. Others see it quite differently, and I want to share just a little bit from them. One Jewish philosopher from the 12th century said this, when Messiah comes, the other books of the Hebrew Bible will pass away, but the Torah and Esther will last forever. Like, what, what part of Esther is he reading? Right? Everybody else is like, no way, disgusting. No, this book, along with the law of God, will last forever. Alistair Roberts and Andrew Wilson, in their book, Echoes of Exodus, see it all quite differently. Listen to this. They see this story through the lens of the Exodus from Egypt. That being the case, the reader is ready for the tension where Israel will be oppressed and destroyed. We also know the attempt will fail. What is more, how it will fail. It will involve the antagonist, Pharaoh, Haman, the serpent, being deceived by the shrewdness of the righteous. It will include the poetic justice of seeing Israel's enemies having the tables turned on them. In this case, hanging on a tree or being impaled. The the death Haman had intended for the Jews, much as Egypt had drowned in the sea after trying to drown the Israelite boys. The turning point will be a nighttime meal in which the judgment of death, which was decreed on the day before Passover, Esther 3.12, will pass from Israel to their enemies. Israel will end up with the spoil from the very enemies who were trying to kill them and security in the land. The whole episode will be commemorated with a feast and a holiday from that day forward. Echoes of the Exodus are everywhere. That's from Roberts and Wilson, their book, Echoes of Exodus. Fascinating. I mean, just to see that this is a retelling of the Exodus story and so that, you know, our ears would perk up again like, oh, God's on the move, even though he's not seen. And as I said before, God is not mentioned at all, and it's actually a brilliant move by the anonymous author. It's like the author is saying, reader, can you see all the ways Yahweh is so very present and at work behind the scenes. Can you see the invisible hand of God moving apart from miracles, apart from prayer, even in spite of a lack of holiness? The providence of God is clearly at work. The circumstances that get Esther, this Jewish captive, next to the seat of power in the empire. Mordecai, her cousin, the gatekeeper to the palace, just happening to overhear two men plot to kill the king and then getting credit for saving the king's life. The turn of fortunes upon Haman, his family, and the enemies of the Jewish people. Something is going on. There is a power behind the power, but but what is happening? 
What is happening is the sovereignty and providence of God. Now, for some people, that really freaks them out and bothers them. God is sovereign. You're like, you know, I I don't like hearing that. And there are some bothering definitions of sovereignty out there. Honestly, when I hear people say things like that, I'm always like, well, you know, like, yeah, I mean, he is, you know, but like, hold on a second. What do you mean by sovereign? Like, let's, let's, let's slow that down a little bit. Because sometimes when people say that God is sovereign, it means that God causes everything that happens to happen, good and evil. And, and, and the story of, you know, the world is like this big, big painting, you know, and your life is a living hell. Right, but you're like the you're like the darkest part of the eye, and and you're just a part of the bigger picture. So when you step back and look at it, your life might be dark and miserable and a living hell caused by God. But if you back up and look at it, it's this beautiful painting that God is, you know, weaving together a tapestry that God is weaving together. So, you know, just think of the big picture. For some people, that's really comforting. Like, okay, God has caused this living hell to happen in my life. And so, okay, like, I can be okay with that. That definition of sovereignty really bothers me. Number one, because I don't think it's biblical. Number two, because I think it's against the character of God. Sovereignty, I'm going to use a definition from my professor. He says this, God does what he pleases, but not everything that happens pleases him. He is the one that sets the guidelines, and everyone ultimately answers to him. uh, My professor likens it to a ship. Uh, The history of the world is like a ship, and God has set uh, the beginning of that course and the end of that course. And basically, he's kind of allows humanity to steer the ship. So God has destined the beginning and the end, and the course... Sometimes, like crazy people mutiny the ship, right? And God brings it back on track often. But this is kind of the way we see history. Not everything that happens pleases God. God is not the author of evil. We discussed this a couple months back uh, when we were looking at the book of Job and we were looking at um, the pain and suffering of God. So let me just read this one more time. God does what he pleases, but not everything that happens pleases him. He is the one that sets the guidelines and everyone ultimately answers to him. So here we can see that God does what he pleases. Not everything in this story pleases God, but God does what he pleases. God is in the background and he's working and he's moving pieces and he's orchestrating things to get it to that ultimate destination that he has ordained. Now, let's talk about this, right? God behind the scenes. So, Ahasuerus, the king, is charactered as a buffoon. A drunken, self-indulgent, flying-off-the-handle fool. And yet, he is the ruler of the world. How does that make you feel? Have you ever heard anything like that before? Like, just like a... Anybody? What? Come on, our country's not the only one. There's Putin. What was that uh, prime minister in France a couple years ago who was just like his affair was just out in the open that he was just like he had this prostitute like as like his mistress and that was just a thing and people were just like yeah whatever this is actually pretty typical for the history of the world remember Caligula anybody remember him from world history remember what he did appointed his horse as a member of the senate yeah that's your king that's the guy that's calling the shots that's the big man in charge so this guy, he's not really different from other rulers of the word, world. Self-indulgent, flying off the handle. And his kingdom is vast. His lifestyle and wealth is beyond extravagant. He throws a party that lasts 187 days in total. Who does this, right? It's half a year. Like, hey, what are you doing for half the year next year? You want to go to a party? <laughs> like, what's everybody else doing? What is going on here? Um, 
again, a little, a little historical context. This is the king rubbing shoulders with the princes and powers of his empire. It mentions that his, um, his army is there. And it's order, in order to make war plans to invade Greece. See, the Persian and Grecian wars um, are taking place at this time, and Sparta happened not too long before this. I mean, you, guys, you guys know what I'm talking about. Sparta, 300, the Battle of Marathon, right? Yeah, we know about this. Um, and so this is what's going on here. Uh, historically, King Ahasuerus planned this invasion of Greece that miserably failed. But this is what he's doing. He's rubbing shoulders with influencing people, trying to get them on his campaign, trying to schmooze, you know, for uh, supplies for the army and all this kind of stuff. Now, he is most likely very drunk, right? He had given command that there be no end or limit to the drinking. So we're talking the longest and most extravagant open bar maybe in history. And it says when he was of good cheer or in high spirits because of the wine. So while the wine is flowing and the party is going, he has this great idea. He commands his wife Vashti, the queen, to be brought by the seven eunuchs so she can come and parade her beauty before all the princes because she was beautiful to look at. The Midrash, which is the rabbinical telling and interpretation of the Old Testament, believes that this is an order for Vashti to, pervade, uh, to parade naked before the male gawkers. A kind of royal striptease for all the king's princes, advisors, captains to lust over. It's, it's gross. It's appalling and dehumanizing. Um, and the whole scene has been described by Robert Alter as a carnivalesque spirit of sensuality and dissipation. So I mentioned before, like Mardi Gras and Christmas. I mean, like Louis XVI, Marie Antoinette type stuff. I mean, this is just like Vanity Fair no bars hold. Vashti the queen refuses the king's command. Way to go, girl. And the king throws a royal fit. Right? He gets super angry. And get this. He has to call all of his best counsel together to figure out how to respond to his wife. Right? Who is this guy? According to the law, what's to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of the king of Hashuwares delivered by the eunuchs? I don't know what to do. Somebody told me no. Like, I mean, seriously. Like, this is, it's comedy. This is what the, the scripture is painting, this picture. The guy can't even have a conversation with his own wife when he's refused by her. He wants her to be displayed naked in front of all of his mighty princes to see. He literally throws a royal fit when he doesn't get his way and has no idea how to handle it. So his royal advisors tell him, Vashti has to be banished or else all the other women in the empire will disrespect their husbands. Make an example of her. And just listen to the ridiculousness of this. I know we already heard it, but one more time. Not only against the king has Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath and plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree was made by the king throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king. Of course it did. And the princes. And the king did as Memuchen proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. What do you do when buffoons rule the world and make ridiculous decrees? Every man be master in his own household and speak the language of his people. You, know, you can say it, but it doesn't make it so. You know? Here's a guy who wants to command respect and honor, but he is not respectable. He is not honorable. And guys, this is the history of the world. 
people in power that are not honorable, that are not respectable, ruling and giving absurd decrees. There are times and seasons in life and in the history of the world when it seems that God is not present or that he is silent. And we wonder, what is going on in the world? Does God care? I mean, just think about like the last couple years. I mean, just from, I mean, like what's happening? Does anybody know where things are going? It's like one vote is like super progressive. The other vote is super conservative. Like we don't even know where we're going as a country. We vote in a very conservative judge into the Supreme Court. We also vote in gay marriage. Uh, We had the first African-American president in the history of America. And then we voted in Donald Trump. Like, I mean, and, and wherever you stand on all this stuff, like that's kind of beside the point. But can you see how polar these types of decisions are? Where are we going? And... Where we're going, is this leading to more flourishing? Is this leading to a more um, open and free and joyful society? It's madness. The world has gone mad. Do you feel this way? Because I do. Reading, reading the newspaper, I'm like, we can't make up our minds. It's Beyonce's world, and we're just living in it, Right? You hear the philosophies and lifestyle of the richest, most powerful and influential people in the world, and you think, this is absolute insanity. The world is ruled by those swimming in self-indulgence, decadence, and debauchery, and we're just a bunch of pawns. We're just the little helpless people. My life, good or bad, righteous or unrighteous, just or unjust, is just a drop in the bucket. What does it matter? What can I do? And what difference does it make anyway? And the resounding answer seems to be nothing. Doesn't that sound a lot like the book of Ecclesiastes? One person suggested that this is actually maybe the story of the book of Ecclesiastes. This is how it all works. Madness, vanity, hevel. And if this isn't bad enough, we can look at the church and we see equal amounts of insanity. Past generations of the church were more faithful than we are. The church in our generation is grossly compromised. We are a lot like Esther, living in exile, never never knowing temple worship, Torah teaching, and kosher keeping. The distinct lifestyle and witness of the people of God. We are living in a post-Christian age, and we have lost our rootedness. Some of you never even knew that. And maybe that's a good thing in, in many ways. I mean, you never knew Petra, and you never knew Striper, and you never knew, like, all of these terrible ways that the world tried to copy, or excuse me, the church tried to copy the world and kind of create our own Christian subculture. You're welcome, right? We lived it for you. But you don't ha- also have this memory of, of just upholding respect and honor and the family. And there was this, just these times where there, were, there was peace. There was this time where everybody was at church and it was, I don't know, it was, it was powerful. And some of you have never experienced anything like that. You've only grown up in a post-Christian world. And you have none of the the values about faithfulness. Gosh, this is such an issue with millennials right now. Perseverance and faithfulness. Stick-to-itness. To stay somewhere. To put roots down. To actually have to confront yourself and your own issues. Or to confront people. When things don't go your way. And there's a myriad of other things. But just these... Principles. I actually, Rick DePola sent me an email this week, and he was talking about how reading Tolkien as a child taught him the importance of friendship, how it taught him the importance of loyalty, how it taught him the importance of truth, how it taught him the, the importance of perseverance. And I was just thinking about it. Yes, those are the qualities that we are lacking in this post-Christian era. Everyone is out for themselves. Everyone is out for self-indulgence and self-preservation. We have no sense of Christian heritage and identity as the distinct people of God. 
This is from Mike Cosper, his book, Faith Among the Faithless. He says, Christians in general consume as much mass media, are addicted to pornography, as likely to divorce, as consumeristic and obsessed with social media as the rest of the culture. These are from actual statistics. We look more like the world than the faithful remnant, more like Esther than like Daniel. But... Maybe through this story, there is a way forward for us. Because we are in exile. Whether we think of being just removed from Christendom, which I think is an okay thing, which is actually a good thing for the gospel to be removed from Christendom, but we're not in the kingdom of God yet. We're in exile still. We're waiting for the king to return, to set up that glorious kingdom. We're in exile but we're much more like Esther than Daniel, who was faithful, who was representing the kingdom and the king in exile. So just like Esther, who started off so very much like the culture she lived in, even hiding, denying her identity, seeking to advance her own agenda and save her own skin, but eventually found her way back to an identity among the people of God and being a deliverer of God's people, not because she found God at the top in all her success, but because of a spiritual life crisis, maybe her story can show us a way forward. Listen to this again from Mike Cosper. He says, Esther's great moment is marked not by a show of force, but by vulnerability. The climax of her story comes when after weakening her body for three days and nights of fasting, she walks the path that could most likely end in her death in hopes of saving God's people. Esther's story reveals a way forward in a culture where people of faith find themselves at the margins of society. She neither clutches for power nor seeks self-protection. Instead, she faces reality, embraces weakness, and finds faith, hope, and help from a world unseen. Her story is also an invitation to those whose faith, convictions, and morality are less than they wish they were. Now, I'm not saying that Esther is a story where, like, look, you know, she has this moment of weakness, and then, you know, before the king you know, faces death, and then, you know, wow, she, she's never carnal. She's never selfless. I mean, the stuff that happens, like the brutal murdering of uh, other peoples, I mean, it's pretty horrific. You're like, ah, uh, is that what godliness looks like? So I'm not, I mean, she's a complex character. Like, let's get that straight. But she does have this spiritual crisis in her life that leads her back to her roots. Back to an identity with the people of God. And so maybe her story is an invitation to us. Our convictions, our morality, are less than we wish they were. Now back to the question as we wrap up this morning, what do you do when buffoons rule the world and make ridiculous decrees? What do you do when the world has gone mad? And I think we need to remember two things. The first is the sovereignty and providence of God, and the second is the end of the story. Proverbs 21.1 says this, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. God is the power behind the power. Everything going on in this story is being set up for God to rescue and redeem his people. Is God orchestrating and like commanding Vashti? Like he's behind that, you know, like, oh yeah, yeah. Get her to parade naked. Throw a disgusting party of just debauchery. Like, no. God's not behind that. But God is allowing evil people to do their thing, and he is working through that. We know that from Scripture, that God works through evil to bring about his good plan. Everything going on in this story is being set up for God to rescue and redeem his people. And here is the good news. God is at work. Even though at this moment you cannot see it. So we're talking about Esther, but let's talk about our own lives, right? 
You can't see it. God is always present and never absent, even when his presence isn't obvious. Even in the midst of faithlessness, God is faithful. Though we don't deserve it, and though our conscience may deny it, he is faithful. So, when we see things arise that might threaten the church or the work of God, and we need to be very clear what we mean by threatening the church and by threatening the work of God. When enemies seek to overtake and snuff out the gospel, whether in the third world or right here in our own state, although it seems God is absent and the crazies have taken over the asylum, God is ultimately in control. Remember, God is sovereign and at work behind the scenes. This story here is a reminder that God does not abandon his people no matter how dark their circumstances or how compromised their hearts or how hidden his presence. Can I just tell you, it's really hard for me to even say those words. It's hard for me to say those words, how compromised their hearts, because I, in my heart of heart, I want to deny that. Because I see so much of that in the church. Like, oh, God will work it out. God will work it out as we continue in unfaithfulness. As we continue just to just live like the world, God will work it out. It'll be fine. You know what? God may work it out. The question is, will we be part of it? Will we be part of it? God will work it out. He will bring his plans to fruition. The question is, will we be among the faithful? Will we be among the recipients, or, we, or will we be so compromised that we have actually deceived ourselves to think that we are the people of God? Now, Esther, apparently, when the glass looked half empty, was actually half full. Praise God. Can we say the same of ourselves? The glass looks half empty. Is it half full? Are you moving closer? Are you moving toward conviction? Are you moving away from that? No matter how dark their circumstance or how compromised their hearts are or how hidden his presence. Again, it's hard for me to say that. I do believe it, but it's hard for me to say that because I think that we just have ears to hear what we want to hear. That I can just live however I want and God will take care of me and work it out. The second thing we need to know in the midst of darkness when buffoons rule the world We need to remember that the story isn't over. We're just in the middle of it, and we cannot see what God is doing, and we cast our judgments like it's the final act. But we know the end of the story, not just Esther, but the story of the world. We know of God's great victory at the cross over the powers and rulers that rule this present age. Paul writing to the church in Ephesus, an insanely licentious and evil city with very powerful people and influencers and a spiritual darkness and power as well. He says this, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know What is the hope to which he has called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. See, here in this passage, Paul reminds us that our God is a God that brings light out of the blackest darkness. That God turned the greatest defeat the world has ever seen into the greatest victory the world has ever known. He took the shamed and crucified Messiah and set him on the throne of the universe. Remember Peter's words on the day of Pentecost. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. 
As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, but God raised him up, loosening the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Do you hear that? Jesus was betrayed by Judas, handed over to the religious leaders, handed over to Pontius Pilate and the Roman authority, crucified by Rome. And Peter says on the day of Pentecost, this was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This was no accident. This was not God simply saying like, oh man, what do I do with this situation and this scene? Gosh, I guess I'm going to have to raise Jesus from the dead. He worked through all of this, not in spite of it. So when all the greatest powers of the world, the greatest political power, the greatest religious power, the devil and the demonic realm aligned to destroy Messiah and snuff out the redemptive work of God, and even Jesus himself cried on the cross, my God, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? Three days later, Jesus rose triumphant over the grave. Peter is showing us something we overlook or forget. It wasn't in spite of all this that God did his work, but through all of it that he accomplished his will. I love this quote by John Stott. He says, What looks like and indeed was the defeat of goodness by evil is also and more certainly the defeat of evil by goodness. Overcome there, he was himself overcoming. Crushed by the ruthless power of Rome, he was himself crushing the serpent's head. The victim was the victor, and the cross is still the throne from which he rules the world. Church, never forget, we know the end of the story. We know the one who says in Revelation 21, 5, Behold, I make all things new. God will set all things right. He will judge all evil and sin, all exploiters, all tyrants, all oppressors and dehumanizers. We know the promise. So know that God, Yahweh, is at work behind the scenes. Even though you can't see it, he hasn't forgotten his people. He will be faithful to the end. Even though we don't know what is happening or what is coming next, God knows what is coming, and he's going to preserve his people through it all. I mean, think about this, right? The, the threat of Haman and what he's going to do to try to annihilate the Jews hasn't even surfaced yet. But already, it's like removing Vashti, setting the scene up, enter Esther, okay, Esther's in place, enter Mordecai, overhearing the plot of the Jews, and all the pieces are moving. God is working through this. Even though Esther and Mordecai and the Jewish people have no idea what's coming, God is at work. God is on the move. So the same with us. God knows what's coming, and he is going to preserve his people through it all. And let me say this, as if I haven't said enough. (laughs) On top of that, Who is to say if God might not turn the tide of our generation? Who's to say that God might not pour out his spirit again? That he might not renew and revive his church? That he might do such a work in our day that though our eyes see it, we find it hard to believe. Who knows the mercy, the depth of the mercy and grace of our God? that many would find their way into the kingdom of God. I pray it would be so. You guys, I have been praying and praying and praying for our church. I've been praying for this city, for the churches of our city, for our county, that we would experience revival, that we would experience renewal. And I'm not talking about that we'd be swinging from the chandeliers and the way that we often hear revival being talked about, but I'm talking about that our hearts would return to the Lord, that we would... Seek the kingdom of God first and his righteousness that we would honor our king. That we would live under the authority of our king Jesus and that our community around us would experience the blessing of the people of God and they would flock to be under his rule as well. Renewal and revival. I pray it would be so. Now, The last thing in closing, truly. Maybe you've given up trying. 
maybe you've lost all hope. Maybe you feel like you don't belong in church. Maybe you feel like you don't belong in this church with these good and faithful people. Let me tell you, we're a bunch of Esters. Okay? That's the truth. We are. We're Esters. We are post-Christian, in-exile, lost. Lost our identity. Lost our meaning. Lost our direction. Lost our hope. So, join the club, right? And the good news is this. When you've given up, when you've lost hope, when you don't feel like you don't belong, excuse me, when you feel like you don't belong, when you feel like you're powerless to change yourself, your circumstances to change the world, then you are in the most perfect place to receive grace. God's power. God's saving love because you've, because you've come to the end of yourself. You're in the perfect place to receive forgiveness and help from the sovereign Lord who made heaven and earth. You're in the perfect place to watch God do something amazing, to watch him turn the tide, to see God's power and presence in the rolling of the dice. So in light of that, I would like us to close by praying a prayer of surrender and repentance together. Maybe this doesn't hit you at all. Okay, you don't have to pray this prayer with us. But if this has hit you, I invite you to pray along with us in this prayer. I'm not sure if we have a slide for it or not. Yeah, we do. Praise the Lord. All right. I would like us to pray this prayer. I wrote it out myself. This came out of this this study. So, Lord, today... We want to surrender, not to anyone or anything but you, not to culture, to our own self, not to anyone but you. We want to release control so that we can begin to get into what you are doing in the world, where you are moving and working. Give us the eyes of faith to see your hand, your will at work in even the most darkest of times. We know the God who is light, and we pray that your light would shine brightly through us in these dark days. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.